Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 298. Today's big Bible question is, what are the signs of a healthy church? Well, happy Tuesday to you, friends. Our Bible readings for today include 2 Kings chapter 1, Psalms 110 and 111, Daniel chapter 5, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, I do know that pride comes before a downfall, and therefore I'm trying very hard not to be proud of myself today, but I do have to confess that I am a little proud of myself today, and I feel like I've sort of graduated from uh, maybe fifth grade to sixth grade, perhaps. Why the pride, I hear you wondering? Well, an interesting thing happens in Daniel chapter 5 today, one of our Bible readings. Yes, uh, the most interesting thing that happens in Daniel 5 is that uh, the hand of God writes on the wall of King Belshazzar's throne room that his reign is over, and Daniel comes in and interprets the writing for the king. That is far and away the most interesting and important thing that happens in Daniel 5, but something else happens there as well, and that would have made for such a good Bible reading podcast headline question. Did King Belshazzar poop himself? Yes, I know. It is a most ridiculous and rude question. And of course, therefore, I opted not to put it in the lead for today's show. However, I'm not yet mature enough myself to avoid the question entirely. So let's ask it. Did the king do one of the single most embarrassing things possible for an adult to do? Well, I actually believe the translators of the Christian Standard Bible think he did. So let's go read Daniel chapter 5 together and you'll see what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence under the influence of the wine. Belshazzar gave orders to bring in gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the figures, fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. He said to those wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, 
was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that inside intelligence and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could give me no interpretation. However, I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. This is the message that was inscribed. Many, many, takel, parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So, I probably don't need to tell most of you, at least, that soiling yourself is a euphemism for exactly what you think it is. The Hebrew, though, there is much less clear, however. And yes, I did go and study this passage in the Hebrew. How embarrassing. I am rightly ashamed of myself. Anyway, the literal translation of the Hebrew indicates that the king's loin or hip joints were loosed. Could that be an ancient Hebrew euphemism for having a bowel movement? It certainly could, but I didn't study that issue for very long as I have rather unfortunately loaned out my copy of Dr. Shinayim's Semitic language euphemisms for bowel movements to my friend Gary, and thus I couldn't study the issue as much as I wanted to. Now that said, the grammar being a bit ambiguous and not at all clear, we turn to the context of the passage to look for clues, 
And I honestly don't think the context indicates that anything particularly untoward happened. There seems to be no embarrassment, no King Belshazzar briefly dismissing himself to run to the potty or anything like that. Instead, he's entirely focused on quickly finding a translation for the writing. So my best guess is that that the king was overcome with fright and his bowels or his insides were shaking just like his knees, but nothing much more than that. Of course, I'm guessing because the Bible again is being a little veiled here. Uh, in this particular situation, but that's my best guess, that um, we didn't have as messy of a situation as we could have. Never mind that. Our primary focus today is Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and our question concerns what makes for a healthy church. I do need to say at the outset of wrestling with that question that it's not a 100% pure or a fair question in one sense, because our passage today does not directly answer the question we're asking, at least, you know, not in the clearest of ways. I actually don't think there is any one place in the New Testament that fully addresses the question of what makes for a healthy church in a direct and obvious way. By that, I mean that we have no writing for Peter or Paul, etc., that says, here are the four signs of a healthy church. Absent something like that, however, I do actually think we have a ton of information on what it means for a church to be healthy, and a lot of exhortations that point us in the direction of being healthy churches, so we're not at all completely in the dark here. I suppose many people, if asked, many church people, that is, if asked, would say that the number one sign of a church health uh, being healthy is growth. In some ways, I can agree with that. Growth is very important. Not so much that you would have a big church with lots of numbers that would win high attendance awards, Like, are those still a thing? Because I remember my pastor when I was in college frequently talking about high attendance awards awards that the church was winning for its Sunday school. I haven't heard of that talked about in a long, it's been a long time. Um, So growth is important, not that we would win those rewards, get those trophies and have the big numbers, but more that people would be reached with the gospel, that they would be baptized, saved, becoming disciples of Jesus. Growth is a healthy thing if growth is happening in the right way. Now, I guess I should pause for a second and address what kind of growth would be unhealthy. And that's actually a fair question uh, because, you know, you think the church should naturally grow and it's probably not a way for it to grow unhealthily. Well, let's think about a couple of scenarios. Scenario number one, a completely made up one. Where Let's say there's a town of, I don't know, 20,000 people about 10 miles outside of a big city. There are 20 or 30 or so faithful Bible-believing churches in that town of different denominations, and none of them have an average attendance over 300. But let's say a big megachurch from the nearby city comes to the town and plants a church where the sermons are piped in from the main campus, and a highly skilled worship team leads worship. The church spends thousands of dollars, maybe even tens of thousands of dollars, getting the word out on the, quote, grand opening and gives away, I don't know, 20 iPhones or a car or something on the first Sunday, something like that. A thousand people show up and 95% of them come from the existing churches in town. Would that be an example of unhealthy growth? I'll just say maybe so and leave it at that. I don't know for sure. I kind of think so. Another example, perhaps based a little bit more on reality. A church pastor preaches nothing but positive messages about God's love and his desire to make everybody successful and wealthy and healthy. He's a good-looking pastor, good at speaking, and the church does everything excellently. They got a great building, 
They got a good-looking worship team. Their sound quality is top-notch. They do everything sort of at a Hollywood level. Sin is rarely mentioned. Controversial Bible teachings are avoided. Questioning of the leadership is avoided. And the gospel of Jesus is never preached. Only the gospel of health and wealth and success and that sort of thing. Now, that church grows and becomes the hip place to attend church in a particular area. Does that represent unhealthy growth? I kind of actually think it does. Uh, I don't think that's helping the kingdom of God any, and I do think that's hurting and hindering the activity of the real church in that particular city. Healthy growth, on the other hand, would be more along the lines of a church, big or small, that faithfully teaches God's word, and the people of a church, big or small, who faithfully, winsomely, persistently, and prayerfully share the gospel with other people. Church growth is good, and I rejoice to see the church grow. That said, I struggle to find commands in the word to grow the church and to have high numbers in attendance. I do see the church in Acts chapter 2 rejoicing that thousands are saved, and that's a good thing, and the church in Acts 4 being strengthened and God adding to their number daily. So, Lord, let that happen in our church, the church I go to. Lord, let it happen in the church that, of people who are listening this. But I rarely read passages, and I honestly can't think of a single example, maybe you guys can help me, where Paul exhorts the church to keep growing in number. Instead, we read things like what we read today in Second Thessalonians. So let's go ahead and read the whole passage, and maybe you'll see what I'm talking about, because it's a very short chapter. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you really see that in verses 3 and 4 of that passage, where Paul says, We thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, because your faith is flourishing, and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. And it would appear that the sign of health in this church, the thing that God is, that Paul is thanking God for, that is, is that the church is flourishing in its faith and growing in love for each other. Now, significantly, this isn't the only place where Paul rejoices over a similar dynamic. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. 
We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's First Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. Also, Colossians 1, 3, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints. The things that Paul seems to rejoice over include increasing faith, increasing belief in Jesus, that is, and increasing love for each other in the church. Now, of course, that doesn't tell quite the whole story of church health, but I do believe it points us to at least two really critical characteristics of a healthy church, that they would be growing in faith, that they would be growing in love for each other. Now, Mark Dever has been far more systematic with that question and answer than I have been. He's written an excellent book that covers the nine marks or the distinguishing signs of a healthy church. Tim Challies, the uh, uh, the excellent Christian blogger, in his review of that book, helpfully condenses those nine marks down to a very short paragraph each. So let's close by reading what Pastor Mark Devers says is the nine marks of a healthy church, as I believe they give us a good gauge as to what being healthy as the church in 2020 looks like. First of all, he says, expositional preaching. And I'm going to read Challie's summary of all of these. Expositional preaching, otherwise known as expository preaching, is the investigation of a particular passage of scripture whereby the pastor explains carefully the meaning of the passage and then applies it to the members of the congregation. So that mark number two of a healthy church is biblical theology. This emphasizes not only how we are taught, but also what we, what we are taught. In a sense, this should follow naturally from expository preaching, because the careful exposition of a passage should lead to sound theology. The majority of poor theology in the church arises from a lack of careful biblical exposition. Mark number three of a healthy church, biblical understanding of the good news or the gospel. There needs to be proper understanding and necessary emphasis on the full gospel, where many contemporary churches that teach that Jesus wants to meet our felt needs and gives a, give us a healthy self-image, that's not the gospel. The gospel message is that we are sinners who have rebelled against our creator, but Jesus took the curse and the punishment that was rightfully ours, and all that remains is for us to have faith in him so God may credit Christ's righteousness to our account. When we de-emphasize sin and damnation to make the presentation more friendly and less offensive, we cease declaring the full gospel, and that's dangerous. Mark number four of the healthy church a biblical understanding of conversion. When we have a biblical understanding of the gospel, we must also have a biblical understanding of conversion. Conversion is a new birth from death to life, and it's a work of God. It's not merely a change of attitude or a change of affection, but a change of nature. Conversion does not need to be an exciting emotional experience, but it does need to produce fruit to be demonstrated a true conversion. Mark number five. Biblical understanding of evangelism. The way we evangelize or share the good news speaks volumes about how we understand conversion and how we understand the good news. If we believe that people are essentially good and are seeking Jesus on their own, we will evangelize using half-truths and we will tend to elicit false conversions. When we present a watered-down gospel, we will end up with a watered-down church. 
We need to be faithful to present the full gospel of the Bible, the good news and the bad, and leave the results to God. Mark number six of a healthy biblical church, biblical understanding of church membership. Church membership is a privilege and a responsibility, and it needs to be regarded as such. People should only be members if they are actually dedicated to that church in particular, dedicated in attendance, prayer, service, and giving. To allow people to become and remain members for sentimental or other unbiblical reasons actually makes light of membership and could even be dangerous to the health of that church. Mark number seven of healthy churches, biblical church discipline. Discipline guides church membership. The church has the responsibility to judge the life and teaching of the membership since they can negatively impact the church's witness of the gospel. Leadership needs to be firm and disciplined as this is an expression of love for the congregation. Number eight mark of a healthy church, promotion of church discipleship and growth. We need to recover true discipleship, discipleship that causes Christians to live lives of increasing holiness. The emphasis on growth needs to be directed at holiness rather than membership. True discipleship producing strong, committed Christians will indeed present a clear witness to the world. And finally, mark number nine of a biblically healthy church is a biblical understanding of leadership. Until recent times, almost all Protestants agreed that in church government there should be a plurality of leaders or elders which means that there should be an office of elder and not merely one or more pastors in position of leadership. This is a biblical and practical model that has fallen out of favor in modern times. Now, I would recommend Mark Dever's book to you, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I don't know that I would agree with Pastor Mark on everything, but I hold him in high esteem, believe him to be a mighty man of God and a faithful teacher of the word, and I think he gives us a better understanding of what indicates church health as opposed to simply counting uh, buns on seats or noses or numbers or what have you. Yes, we should be growing. I hope we are. We should be growing as the church loves each other and engages in gospel witness to the world, to our families and friends. That is what is lacking today. What we see so often today is church growing by the power of programs and performances, and I don't think that's going to lead to long-term fruit and long-term gospel penetration. We instead need to see the church growing as the faithful members of the church and, of course, the pastor who is a member and the pastors who are members proclaiming the gospel to lost people in as many ways as possible through podcasts, through in-person evangelism through writing books, articles, social media, etc. Now, if we want to be a healthy church, let's ponder what the Word of God points us to as the signs of health. Let's walk in that. Let's pray for each other, wrestling for maturity in the body of Christ like Epaphras did, and let us gospel this world who is so desperate for good news right now. We will continue in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. 
He will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. Psalm chapter 111 verse 1, Hallelujah, I will praise the Lord with all my heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, the Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. Amen. Finally, we will read 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of the upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not get up from your sick bed. You will certainly die. Then Elijah left. The messengers returned to the king who asked them, Why have you come back? And they replied, A man came to meet us and said, Go back to the king who sent you and declare to him, this is what the Lord says. It is, be- is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending these men to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not get up from your sick bed. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What sort of man came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They replied, A hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. So King Ahaziah sent a captain of fifty with his fifty men to Elijah. When the camp captain went up to him, he was sitting on top of the hill, and he announced, Man of God, the king declares, come down. Elijah responded to the captain of the fifty, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. So the king sent another captain of fifty with his fifty men to Elijah, and he took in the situation and announced, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down immediately. Elijah responded, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. So a divine fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. Then the king sent a third captain of fifty with his fifty men, The third captain of fifty went up and fell on his knees in front of Elijah and begged him, Man of God, please let my life and the lives of those fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Already fire has come down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties, but this time let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, don't be afraid of him. So he got up and went down with him to the king. Then Elijah said to King Ahaziah, This is what the Lord says, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel for you to inquire of his will? You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
Since he had no son, Joram became king in his place. This happened in the second year of Judah's king Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat. The rest of the events of Ahaziah's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Amen. Well, good day to you, friends. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he shine his light on you. May he secure you and keep you safe and bless your coming and going. Good day and Godspeed.